1: Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. Now, I know it's a little bit of a cliche that when we talk about malaria, we always start out by talking about sharks. (laughs) It's the visibility of shark attacks. It's the role of sharks in TV and movies, the violent nature of the damage they inflict. We think of them as the ultimate animal that can harm Humans we need this occasional tap on the shoulders, a little reminder that the most deadly animal on this planet is a much less conspicuous one, the mosquito. Mosquito vector disease is a tremendous global health threat, and we've covered this at length over the years on this podcast, from the GE mosquitoes to the therapeutic agents, you name it. But what if there was a vaccination against the plasmodium? The plasmodium being the infectious agent, this unicellular eukaryotic, well, unicellular in this context, causative agent of the symptom spectrum in humans. It's also the, the infectious agent that's vectored by mosquitoes. This would be an incredible game changer. And a recent paper indicates that maybe a little gene editing may make this breakthrough a reality. Today's guest is Dr. Stefan Kappa. He's a professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Washington and a principal investigator at Seattle's Children's Research Institute. So, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Kappa. Thank you. Yeah, this is a very exciting project. And I really wanted to host more podcasts on malaria because I feel it's something that many of us in the industrialized world fail to realize the impact of. So could we really start by talking about how much of a problem it is in the developing world
2: and how many people are affected worldwide? Yes, you're absolutely right. It is a problem of mostly developing countries and it remains a tremendous global health threat particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. So the majority of the malaria burden is in African countries, but it's also a problem in Southeast Asia and South America, and it remains a problem there as well. So we are looking at about, let's say, for example, 2020, where we have pretty good numbers, about 600,000 deaths worldwide and about 200 million clinical cases now, to emphasize that these are people that go to hosp- go to the hospital with malaria. So 200 million people in the hospital every year with malaria. And the tragic part of this is that it affects mostly in Africa, children under the age of five and pregnant women. And that's where the majority of the mortality is.
1: And I think in the manuscript that was recently published, the paper that was recently published, says that there's a, 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 a death from the infection every 60 seconds. That's about right. Yes, this is a a really major problem. The, The vectors and the pathogens here are really complex, though. And can you give us a walkthrough of how malaria spreads?
2: Yes. So first of all, to emphasize, it's a parasitic infection. So we are looking at a single cell eukaryotic organism, quite more complex than a virus, more complex than bacteria. And this parasite is transmitted by mosquitoes to humans, and it sits in the salivary glands of the mosquito as a form called the sporozoite stage. And that sporozoite stage, when a mosquito takes a blood meal and during the blood meal, the mosquito spits to release saliva, that parasite is injected into the human skin with a spit and then immediately makes its way to a blood vessel, penetrates the blood vessel in the skin, and then it's transported to the liver by blood flow. And when the parasite reaches the liver, it exits the bloodstream and infects liver cells, hepatocytes. And within the hepatocytes, it makes itself at home and starts growing and replicating to ultimately produce over a period to six, about 60,000 progeny that then are released as invasive forms called merozoites into the bloodstream where they infect red blood cells. And. Here, they replicate again over a 48-hour cycle, cyclically infecting and destroying red blood cells, growing in billions of parasites within a couple of weeks. And that phase in the blood is what causes all symptoms and ultimately causes death in an infected human. The phase of the parasite in the liver is completely asymptomatic. And as I mentioned, it lasts for about six to seven days. So after you get bitten by a mosquito for seven days, you don't know that you are infected and you're completely asymptomatic. Only on day eight and onward, you start feeling the symptoms of malaria. And then the parasite ultimately, when it wants to reach another host, makes sexual forms, and these sexual forms are taken up by the mosquito, fertilize in the mosquito and form new forms that can then infect and replicate in the mosquito to ultimately colonize the salivary glands to, for the next fight, infects the next host.
1: And doesn't the, at least the parasite, does it have some unusual characteristics that allow it to evade immune
2: detection? Yes, in the bloodstream, it certainly has mechanisms to evade immune detection, and that's something we call antigenic variation. So it has a gene families that are highly variant in terms of the protein sequence. And these gene families allow the parasite to adhere to the vasculature and actually not get cleared by the spleen. So it's an advantage for the parasite to adhere to the vasculature. But on the other hand, because these proteins are ex- exposed on the infected red cell surface, they are also recognized by the immune system. And because they are, the parasite has to, vary, has to keep them variant, so they are not uh, easily caught up in the immune response that is elicited in an infected individual. So the parasite puts new versions of this molecule on the surface and escapes the immune response. And that's a major issue with developing vaccines against the bloodstream form of the parasite. And that's one of the reasons why we are focusing our vaccine on the initial stage of infection in the liver.
1: Okay. That helps a lot. So what are the current ways in which malaria is controlled? How, how is it mitigated in, in reality and how effective are these approaches?
2: Yeah. So because malaria is transmitted by mosquitoes, one way to preventing malaria is obviously preventing mosquitoes, infecting mosquitoes from biting humans. And one way of doing this is using insecticides and spraying insecticides and killing mosquitoes. Now. In the past, we have used environmental spraying to control mosquitoes, but that came with problems, remember DDT, and now it's more focused on in-house spraying. So it's called indoor residual spraying. Spraying is focused on actual dwellings where people live. And in addition, we have insecticide impregnated bed nets that can be used to eliminate uh, infection by just physically preventing the parasite from biting an individual, but also killing the mosquitoes when they get in touch with the best net by the insecticide. And then ultimately, if you are infected and suffer symptoms of malaria, you can get treated. So there are anti-malarial treatments, and that saves millions of, life, of lives each year. If we wouldn't have these treatments, many more people would die of malaria. However, the parasite develops resistance against these treatments. And So far, the parasite has developed resistance against every single drug that has been developed to eliminate it.
1: Wow. And it's also a question of access. Do all people in the developing world have access to those treatments?
2: Yes, absolutely. That's a great question. Although treatments are sold relatively cheaply and are available in the developing countries, I think access is a problem and making them available for everyone. It is a challenge to get the drugs to everyone. It's a challenge to have everyone treated if they are infected. And if the hospital doesn't have the necessary drugs, people go untreated. But it's a challenge all across the board. It's a challenge with bed nets as well. Look, I mean, an interesting anecdote is that, you know, if you give someone a bed net who has to make a decision, do they want to prevent their child from getting malaria or do they want to catch fish with a bed net and provide some food on the table? That's a hard decision to make. And this, these are the kind of socioeconomic conditions under which malaria thrives.
1: Yeah, it's another reason I really appreciate you taking the time to do this today, because people need to understand those decisions and and what's actually happening in in that context of where malaria is happening, you know, the the real-life situation. And there have been, because the mitigation strategies even seem a little bit primitive, we're using chemistry and nets. There's been several attempts to create vaccines
2: that target the plasmodium, but how effective are they? Yeah, so there is one vaccine that is actually now recommended by WHO for use in sub-Saharan Africa. It's called RTS,S, and that's what we call a subunit vaccine. It's basically made of one protein component of the parasite that is on the surface of the infectious form that gets transmitted by that gets transmitted by sporozoite stage. And this vaccine has been under development for nearly thirty years and is finally uh, on the market, so to speak, and it can be used. The unfortunate fact is that the levels of protection it achieves are modest at best. And although it will save lives, it is definitely not a vaccine that will change the epidemiology and transmission dynamics of malaria, I believe. So it's a good start, you know, with a between 20 and 30% protection against clinical disease. But we need to do better than this if we really want to address the uh, catastrophes that happens every year worldwide with malaria.
1: Okay, so that one's more of a traditional protein-based subunit vaccine. So, what about attenuated parasite, where you just you know inactivate or severely impair the entire parasite and use that?
2: Yeah. So the history of using attenuated parasites as a vaccine goes all the way back to the 1960s and 70s, when it was first demonstrated that if you immunize laboratory animals with irradiation-attenuated sporozoite stages, this form that is transmitted by mosquito, you can illicit protection in, in in laboratory animals against subsequent infection. And that was then tested in humans in the 1970s by vaccinating individuals with irradiated sporozoites. Back then in the 70s, it was also done by mosquito bite administration. And that showed that you can get fairly robust protection against malaria infection. I have to explain one more thing. And the way this is tested is by something we call controlled human malaria infection. So we can actually recruit subjects and expose them to malaria to test vaccine efficacy. And that has been used in the 70s and it's still used today. And it's a great way of quickly assessing vaccine efficacy or drug efficacy to malaria. And we can do this because we can safely treat the infection if we challenge with laboratory strains. So the irradian sporozoite has really led the way. And historically, the, the, the attenuated parasite form that has been used most in, in research and has more recently, over the last 12 years, been developed as a vaccine by a company called Scenaria. And they have mastered the ability to grow these furorized stages in mosquitoes, isolates them, purifies them, preserves them, and then have an injectable form of this vaccine for clinical studies. And they have done numerous clinical studies showing that irradiated furorized can protect against Controlled human malaria infection, and they have also shown that it can protect in clinical settings in malaria endemic yeah. areas. The issue I see with irradiation attenuated sporozoids is that they have to made, be made every time and irradiated every time, and it's an uncontrolled process in certain ways. And uh, you don't have a true genetic identity of this organism that you are using as a vaccine because you are introducing random DNA damage. So that's where our work comes in, where we decided. It's a good start, but we want to really go with more modern ways of attenuation, and so that's why we decided to use genetic modification to attenuate the parasite during the liver stage of infection.
1: And that's a perfect transition. So very, very nice. So we're speaking with Dr. Stefan Kappa. He's a professor in the Department of Pediatric at the University of Washington and principal investigator at Seattle's Children Research Institute. This is Collaborus Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment.
0: This episode is brought to you by Collabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Collabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.
1: And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Stefan Kappa. He's a professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Washington and the principal investigator at Seattle's Children's Research Institute. And we're talking about modern strategies to mitigate the problem of malaria, an incredibly complex and challenging problem that affects primarily the developing world. And we've spoken already about the complexities of the infection, the problems with trying to meet it, and maybe a way in which it may be able to be approached using genetic engineering. How is this done in the latest approach?
2: So this is a parasitic organism. It has a eukaryotic cell makeup. It has about 5,000 genes, so very difficult to envision how you choose genes for attenuation right so what we did is we generated gene expression profiles of the parasite when it infects the liver and this is really key right because as i pointed out the liver stage infection is the foot is the first step that creates a foothold of the parasite in the human host so to speak and if we can eliminate the parasite at this stage you do not get the onset of blood stage infection which causes all clinical symptoms of ultimate death but you also do not do not get onward transmission of the parasite by the mosquito to a next person. So, we want to stop the parasite in the liver. How do we do this? We attenuate the parasite by using genes that we defined as being critical for the parasite replication in the liver. We delete those genes using CRISPR Cas9 gene deletion strategies. And then we create a parasite that can infect the liver. It has to be alive and infects the liver in order to be immunogenic. We, we, we know this because we have done experiments to demonstrate that dead parasites or non-infectious parasites do not induce protection. For well, the parasite, it infects the liver and then it replicates to a certain degree and then it dies in the liver. It does not on its own cause infection. But what it does is it elicits a very potent immune response both an antibody response as well as a T cell response that eliminates oncoming parasites subsequently. So if you are immunized with these attenuated parasites, the T cells recognize the next infected cell of one parasite transmission and eliminate it. And that is key. So you get what we call sterilizing protection. You don't protect necessarily against disease only, but you actually protect against the infection taking of what told in the person.
1: No, that's very good. How much of that is due to the fact that you're using a very complex organism that has a large number of antigens, which are actually being
2: responded to by the body? That's exactly right. That's a key aspect of this. So when when we... Compare the subunit vaccine approach with a single antigen, such as surface protein of the parasite, to our approach using the whole parasite and immunogen, it is intuitively clear why a whole parasite is better. You get a much more multi-pronged immune response against many different antigens that are expressed in the parasite, potentially thousands of antigens versus one antigen. So the immune response is much better educated on multiple components of the parasite, and that creates this much more potent, much more protective immune response that we are looking for if we ultimately want to really prevent malaria infection in the majority of people that are vaccinated.
1: Yeah, and if I can take a step back, you know, this kind of work, I should mention that it was published recently in Science Translational Medicine and has a significant research team. So who else played a role in this research?
2: So in this study that was published recently, we had a team of individuals. Well, first I had the research team in my group, mainly Dr. Ashley Vaughan, who is a senior scientist in my group, or was a senior scientist, is now a professor as well at the research institute, and then team members, other team members that played a role in my group, as well as collaborators at the University of Washington, Sean Murphy, who is a professor of medicine there, as well as the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, Jim Kobelin, I need to mention, who participated in getting this study done. So this study is just the beginning of our work because what we did there is we created a parasite form by genetic engineering that is what we call replication deficient. So this is a parasite that infects the liver cell and then dies off. And it induces a quite good immune response and we have shown in our trials that it can protect about 50% of the vaccinees with a very, I would say, irregular immunization schedule with my mosquito bite. And we can get to that in a minute, but we are already thinking ahead and we are realizing that replication deficient parasites are not yet the ideal life attenuated immunogen. What we really want to have is a parasite that can infect, replicate to the more, to the largest extent possible, but cannot get into the bloodstream. And we have been, recently been able to create these parasites, which we call replication competent parasite vaccines. And these will go into clinical trials in the early, I would say summer of next year.
1: And what what kind of genes do you need to disrupt to cause the replication deficiency versus the replication competent inability to infect red blood cells? what are they Are they different suites of genes?
2: They are absolutely different suites of genes, and, and we only recently have been able to identify the genes which, which we, with which we can, upon deletion, create replication-competent parasite vaccines. So, the genes that we, create, that we use for creating the first generation of replication-deficient parasite vaccines are important for the parasite to establish its intracellular niche in the, in the infected cell. So, when you delete these genes, the parasite cannot form a membrane around compartment and protect itself against the host cell cytoplasm. So that's why these parasites die off rapidly and eliminated by the infected cell, but elicit an immune response on the way. The replication-competent parasites are generated by genes that are only important in the latest stages of development in the liver when the parasite makes new infectious forms. And these gene deletions prevent the parasite from making new infectious forms, these merozoite stages that can infect, infect red nut cells when they get released from the liver. So the parasite grows to an enormous size compared to the Replication deficient parasite, think about a pea and a watermelon, but it creates so much more antigen, but it cannot, and, and more antigen and a more a greater diversity of antigen, but it cannot escape into the blood and infect red cells. So that's the perfect attenuated vaccine that targets the liver form of the parasite.
1: This is really neat stuff. But what, one of the really interesting parts of this is the way in which the test examined its ability to function by by how it was administered so it, this wasn't a mm-hmm. vaccine that was injected right at least through traditional methods right. so how how is this tested and how does that play a role in ultimately maybe the way it would be delivered in its real context
2: yeah so we chose for the trial that we just published was a replication deficient parasite vaccine, we chose to immunize by mosquito bite because frankly we didn't have the ability to make the parasite and violet it and have an injectable form. So just for experimental medicine purposes and getting data on the protect safety and protective efficacy of this parasite vaccine, we immunized by mosquito bite. And we did this by giving subjects either three times or five times 200 bites, carrying this attenuated vaccine in the mosquito salivary glands. And that was a delivery method. And then, you know, after uh, four weeks, we challenged the subjects and that's how we determined that 50% of them were completely protected against this challenge. I was one of the subjects and I can tell you that 200 mosquito bites is not a pleasant way to get a vaccine. And we certainly do not think that this is a viable vaccine platform for immunizing hundreds of millions of individuals who need this vaccine. That's why we are collaborating with a biotech company, which I mentioned earlier, scenario, that has developed methodologies to actually purify these vaccines from the mosquito salivary glands and clean them up so we can inject them directly into individuals. And this will be done in our next trial next year where we actually now have an injectable form of this parasite vaccine, the replication competent parasite vaccine, our latest generation strains have been generated. So to your question, is there an advantage to give it by mosquito bite? I think there might be immunological advantages, but I think it's impractical to do this, obviously, large scale. So we have to go with injectable fault.
1: Yeah, I understand now, because originally when I read the paper, I, I kind of thought that maybe this would be a way in which the you would be able to spread the, the plasmodium from, from individual to invi- individual, from individual to individual, and spread the... Non-replicating type, but if it's not replicating, it wouldn't really be there for the mosquito to pick up anyway.
2: That is correct, and I can tell you that we would never get approval for using such a vaccine that is spread by mosquitoes. I think it would be very difficult to convince governments, countries, that they would have a malaria parasite strain that spreads by mosquito and vaccinates individuals involuntarily, so to speak. Right, because that's a, that's a thing, right? When you when you think about vaccines today, look, at, look about the vaccine hesitancy we have in this country with COVID vaccines, we have in other countries with COVID vaccines. Can you imagine telling people that the vaccine is spread by mosquito bite and they don't even know if they get it? I don't think that would be a, a wise decision. So we need to have an injectable form that we can give people and ask for their permission to give it to
1: them. No, I, I understand that now. Yeah, it's, it seems really brilliant in some ways, but when you look at the practical aspects, I totally understand. So, but, but the other practical aspect is that vaccines typically rely on adjuvants and other types, immune stimulatory molecules or, or, or ions or whatever, that help to generate that immune response. So is that another reason to go with a formulated type of vaccine?
2: Yeah, so that's, that it could be another reason. The main reason is practicality of immunization, as I alluded to earlier. So when you think about vaccines that have adjuvants, these are mostly subunit vaccines like proteins, for example, protein-based vaccines used with an adjuvant because in themselves, they are not immunogenic enough to stimulate the immune response. That's why you use these adjuvants to tickle the immune response a little bit more and get a more potent response. Now, with whole attenuated parasites that we are using, the parasite is basically already self-adjuvanting, as I call it. It brings everything in that is needed to stimulate a very potent immune response. And we know this based on animal studies, you get very potent antibody and CD8 T cell responses, these are the, the cellular part of the immune system that eliminate infected hepatocytes. But we are thinking ahead and there are adjuvants that we, are, we, are, we could potentially consider using together with the live attenuated vaccine product now. These have have to be adjuvants that don't affect the viability of the vaccine strain, but certainly we can envision certain types of adjuvants such as glycolipids, and that's something that we and our partner company Sanaria is considering.
1: And you mentioned the results of the human trials were about 50% had conferred immunity, but is that really a good benchmark, or can you tell us a little bit more about maybe the details of the outcomes of the first experiments?
2: Yeah, so 50% is good. It's a good start. And as I said, we immunize by mosquito bite. It's a very difficult to control system. You don't know how much vaccine you actually administer. So we were quite pleased with 50% protection. That's hard to achieve with any type of vaccine in this kind of setting, but uh, we want to think ahead. And honestly, we want to get to 100% protection against controlled human malaria infection before we even consider going into malaria endemic areas with this vaccine and testing it, against it, for protection against natural acquisition of infection, you have to, you have to get high levels of protection. Otherwise you will not make a dent in the transmission of the parasite and you will not make dent, not a big dent in the clinical epidemiology of the, of the parasite. So I think that 100% is what we are going for with our next attenuated strain. We'll see, fingers crossed, it will work. We have, be- we have good reason to believe it will work though. And let me explain this a little bit more carefully. So there have been experiments, I would say experimental clinical studies where individuals have received completely unadulterated parasites. So fully infectious parasites, they can infect an individual. They go through the liver, they replicate in the liver, and then they are released in the bloodstream. But in these clinical studies, they administered these parasites to subjects, and then they killed the parasite with a drug in the bloodstream. So you allow full replication in the liver and you kill the parasite immediately when it comes out of the liver in the bloodstream. If you use this type of immunization, it is extremely potent in in protection. So it achieves 100% protection with three immunizations in subjects. And that is an amazing result that has never been achieved with any other vaccine. And that's our, I would say, our guidepost by which we want to go. Of course, this is not a vaccination method. You give infectious parasites to individuals and treat them with a drug. But it gives a scientific evidence that the type of vaccines that we are we are developing will be very potent in the humans.
1: Well, that method does demonstrate that this approach could be efficacious, but does it also have, a, your method, does it have a lot less risk of potential
2: breakthrough infection? That is daily on our mind for X-ray infection. So we were very worried about this because the number one priority with a vaccine is safety. And it has to be absolutely safe. It cannot break through into the blood. So what did we do? So we created this replication-deficient parasite and more recently this replication-competent parasite attenuated at liver stage during the liver infection. And short of going into humans, how do we test this? Well, to the rescue come humanized mice. So we are using mice who have a humanized liver. They carry human liver cells, hepatocytes in their liver, and they have also human red blood cells because we have humanized them for human red blood cells. So for our purposes, they're like a little human. And for the malaria parasites, they look like a little human. So we take our vaccine strains and we inject very high doses, millions of parasites into these humanized mice, and then we test if the parasite can complete liver stage development and escape into the blood. And in these studies, it turned out they cannot. So the parasite was fully attenuated at liver stage. We like to call this that check-in, but they don't check out. A little bit like the cockroach motel. And so, so that showed that likely in humans, we won't see breakthrough infections because in mice carrying human hepatocytes, the host cell of the parasite in the liver, and human red blood cells, the host cell of the parasite in the bloodstream, that these mice do not show breakthrough infection.
1: Well, that's really exciting. So, what happens next in terms of development? Is it really just the clinical trials and tests of this the, of the parasite that can replicate its replication competent, but unable to perform the other stages of the the life cycle infection?
2: Yes. Yeah, so that will be next. We'll conduct a clinical trial in humans next year in Germany. Actually, with collaborators at the University of Tubingen that will recruit subjects and immunize them three times with 200,000 parasite forms, viled in a vial, and then challenge them three months later with a different strain of parasite. So this is also important because we have great strain diversity of this parasite Plasmodium falciparum, and I don't think I mentioned that name yet. That's the parasite we are actually targeting, the, the biggest killer of people in Africa, Plasmodium falciparum. So we'll immunize with our vaccine strain and then challenge with a different strain that is genetically more distant than... And this is a big issue. Remember COVID, right? You had great vaccines that worked against alpha, and then they didn't work so well. You know, all the other strains that came subsequently. And exactly with malaria, there are so many strains out there that we have to protect against them all. And so we'll test if these vaccines protect against other strains by challenging subjects with different strains of parasite. And if that gives us the desired High levels of protection, 100%, then we'll move the product into testing in sub Saharan Africa as quickly as possible. And hopefully, if that works, then we'll have a licensed product on the market in five to seven years. But let me tell you about one more problem. You know, as scientists, we always think about problems, and this is a big one. And that is can we make hundreds of millions of doses of this vaccine in mosquitoes, right? That's a real challenge. And the company scenario that, that I mentioned, is very good at doing this, but I think realistically, we have to think about this as a manufacturing bottleneck. And so what they did recently, that's a very exciting development. They are actually now able to make these parasite vaccines in a culture dish or in a bioreactor, and that will allow us to make very large numbers of doses in a relatively small facility. Big breakthrough for us, this, this development, because it really, now we have a vaccine strain that will work hopefully. And we have a manufacturing platform that can make hundreds of millions of doses. And those two combined might be the solution for malaria.
1: Yeah, I didn't think about that before. The, there's got to be a lot of very strong bottle. Uh, I don't want to say bottlenecks, but barriers in culturing these things in the salivary glands of mosquitoes. You'd have to raise jillions of mosquitoes and have lots of blood to feed them and everything else, right? So
2: this is actually being done in culture in bioreactors. Now it is being, so, it, so the vaccines before were made in mosquitoes, it actually colonized mosquitoes that are sterile, so they don't have any microbial burden. So we can use them to basically generate these parasite vaccines and accumulate them in the salivary glands, from which they are extracted and then purified and vile. But now the company can make these vaccines in bioreactors. And that is big breakthrough, as I said. And hopefully we'll solve the issue of vaccine shortages that we might face with this type of vaccine. Because ultimately, vaccines can induce high levels of protection. But if we don't get them to everyone who needs them, it's a problem. So we need not only to have an effective vaccine, but we also need to have a method of generating it that allows us to reach all the people who need it.
1: Well, that brings up the other problem of logistics. This is an attenuated eukaryotic organism. And this is a, this is a plasmodium. So how labile is that in terms of its ability to be shipped and maybe not be on ice or be kept cold? Is this something that could realistically be shipped around the world and be administered successfully?
2: Yeah. So right now the uh, preservation is actually done in liquid nitrogen. So we'll use liquid nitrogen shippers to distribute the vaccine. And that sounded rather difficult you know, initially, but turns out it's actually quite possible. And there have been studies that have been done to look at this and it's feasible to do this. And, you know, with the COVID vaccines, we all realize that cold chains for vaccines are a big issue, right? And vaccines that are refrigerated are easier to store and to deliver, but they come with a big issue and that's vaccine spoilage, right? So they basically, you know, they're not perfectly refrigerated, they spoil, And now with the COVID vaccines being stored at minus 80, that showed us, well, you know, it's possible to deliver vaccines that I've kept at very low temperatures. It's possible to deliver them to, well, by now billions of people, correct? So liquid nitrogen, I think, is feasible and we'll we'll, we'll see where it goes, but I think it can be done.
1: Well, maybe this is the worst question I'll ask all night, but how much of a step would the successful vaccine be in this global fight against malaria?
2: Well, if we achieve the efficacy levels that we are aiming at, 70 to 100 percent, and if we can get the vaccine to all the people who need it, we would hopefully be able to eliminate malaria from large areas of the world within 10 to 15 years. And that means no more transmission. This is something that, that you have to think about as well. If you have a sterilizing vaccine, a vaccine that uses sterilizing protection, you break the transmission cycle. Think of, again, COVID is a good example. You know, initially we thought it protects against infection. Then we were talking about does it protect against disease, but people can still transmit it. No, we don't want a vaccine that protects only against disease for malaria. We want a vaccine that protects against infection and breaks the infection cycle. So if the parasite cannot be spread anymore, the transmission breaks down and the parasite is eliminated from a geographic area. Oh, that's really great. Well, here's a question that comes from COVID, though. Are there
1: zoonotic reservoirs that, that can harbor malaria or the, the at least the plasmodium stage that can then be tapped to reintroduce to humans?
2: That's a complex question. Let me try to give you an easy answer. For P. falciparum, plasmodium falciparum, the parasites that we are targeting currently because it's the biggest killer in Africa and across the world, There's no no zoonotic reservoir as we know, but there are other malaria parasite species that can infect humans, particularly in Southeast Asia, where there are zoonotic reservoirs and that's non-human primates. So we haven't wrapped our mind yet around this problem because it's less of a, I would say, global issue. It's more of a local issue in Southeast Asia, these parasites, but, you know, maybe our vaccine will protect against those parasites as well. But to reiterate, with PFAL syndrome, the parasites that we really need to eliminate zoonotic reservoirs are not an issue. Well, this is all
1: so exciting. And and if people want more information, where should they look online? Or is there any presence in social media that describes what this process is?
2: Yeah, so I'm not big on social media. I'm a little bit of an older guy, but they can certainly go to our website at Seattle Children's Research Institute, Lab, and find information there, and that can lead them to all relevant other sources, if people want to learn more about malaria, the Centers for Disease Control has excellent information about malaria, as well as the World Health Organization website. But for our particular vaccine type, just come to our website at seattlechildrens.org and you can read all about our work.
1: Excellent, and I'll include links inside the show notes. So Dr. Stefan Kappa, thank you so much for your time tonight on this. I feel a million times more enlightened about not just what malaria is, the extent of the problem, but really feel a sense of hope in the solutions that seem to be not that far away. So thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And as always, thank you for listening to Calabro's Talking Biotech Podcast. This is one to share widely because people need to understand what malaria is and the number of people it affects. It's a tragedy that this goes on as in such a broad context as it does. But at the same time, it seems like we're setting up for a success story in a new way to use genetic engineering to disable that plasmodium that is the infectious agent to be able to render modern techniques that could be able to almost eliminate the problem. This is Collabra's Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week.
0: You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Collabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Collabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, Scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.